The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, in verse 27, we begin reading tonight. And they come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question. And answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men, they feared the people. For all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, by way of preface, before we get into the message, let me just say to you that we, have, we are in the last week of Jesus' earthly life, or his earthly ministry, uh, before the cross, I should say because he had 40 days after the cross where he ministered here. But we're in the week leading up to the cross. As we said many times, clearly the storm clouds of Calvary are gathering here, and they're imminent. He knows what's coming. He knows what's about to hit him. And it's interesting that we have quite a bit of information in this gospel particularly, and the others as well, about what happens, the events that happen in this last week leading up to the cross. In fact, um, here in the book of Mark, what we're going to see for a couple of chapters, or in, at least through the next chapter, is that they, the, these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and all the religious leaders begin to question Jesus. And in, in fact, it's really about four incidents coming up through chapter 12 where they question him, and when I say question him, we'll come back to this in a minute, but not trying to find out information, but trying to trap him, trying to trip him up. This first incident here, they question his authority. You're going to see on over in chapter 12, they question his politics. A little bit further in chapter 12, they question his theology, and ultimately they question his priorities. And we won't get to all of those tonight, but I do want tonight to look at this very first questioning of Jesus where they question his authority. And, and, and they come to him and they ask these things, and they, they're basically here saying, uh, when they say, by what authority do you do this, or who gave you the authority, they're saying, who gave you the right to tell us what to do? Now, isn't that a question we all have to deal with from time to time? Here in America, we are rugged individualists. Most of us want to be John Wayne. We like that idea of the self-made man and the idea that we have rights and you're not going to tell me what to do. And there's some, there's some uh, truth to that. There's some, uh, there's some good things about the fact that we live in a free society where the government and those around us can't come in and and, and be overbearing and, and just crush our will and mold it to theirs. Uh, we certainly live in a, in a free country, and we want to keep it that way. We pray that it will stay that way, although, as Brother John Morgan preached this morning, I fear we're in, entering into a night season where some of those 
liberties are going to be threatened. Brother Sam Bryant said this one time, and I think it's so true. He said, if you're a rugged individualist, you're not going to fit in too well in the kingdom of God, are you? <laughs> I mean, think about that. If they're not going to tell me what to do, well, you know what I'm doing every Sunday morning, in a sense, is getting up here telling you what to do. <laughs> not because I just want you to do it, but I'm, when I read the Word of God, He's telling me what to do. He's coming in and saying, uh, you're coming into church, and the preacher is saying, this is what thus saith the Lord, and you may be acting in this way, but you need to change your actions and your way of thinking and mold it to the Word of God. In fact, that really is the whole point of conversion, is it not? Is that we see the truth. We, we may have been living or acting in one way or thinking in one way, but then in the conversion, I'm not talking about the new birth. This is not a message on the new birth. You have to be born again before you can be converted. <laughs> That's a big difference. Regeneration and conversion are two different things. You can't regenerate a dead man. or you can, I'm sorry, you can't convert a dead man. He has to be regenerated, you see. He has to be given life. You can, you can prop him up. You can dress him up. You can do whatever you want to with him, but he's still dead, okay? You can put a dead man in a suit and bring him to church. But guess what? They're still dead. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't change one thing about that person. You have to give life to the dead before they can be converted. Regeneration and conversion are two different things. But what conversion is all about is that I've been thinking in one way and I've been living in one way and the Lord says I need to change my mind, I need to change my way of thinking, I need to change my way of acting and mold it to the Word of God. Now what they're doing here, if you remember, comes on the heels of Jesus riding the donkey into Jerusalem and walking around and looking at all of the stuff that's going on in the temple, the corruption, and going to Bethany and spending the night and coming back the next day and walking into that temple, marching into that temple. And John tells us he made a scourge, a small scourge of cords, a little whip, and he began to run them out of the temple and overturn the money changers' tables and pour their money out on the floor. That's a big deal. That's some big doings in the temple, as we would say in the country. And after he does all this, these, these scribes and priests and elders come to him and say, what gives you the right to do what you're doing? What gives you the right, or as the word says here, by what authority, and that word authority means privilege or liberty or the jurisdiction. <laughs> That's a good legal term that some of us lawyers understand. Uh, what gives you the right to come in and tell us what to do? Now, if you think about it, Jesus always had an air of authority about him, didn't he? Something different. You remember when he was 12 years old in Luke, the second chapter. We won't turn there, but you can look over there sometime in the 46th and 47th verse, and you'll find that when, when he got separated from his parents and they became frantic and began looking for him, they found him sitting down in the temple reasoning and, and talking with the, the doctors and the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple. And it says they were astonished at his doctrine. They were astonished at what he could do. And how, even at 12 years old, he was impressive. He had an air of authority about him. They could tell there was a little something different about him. 
And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's just one place you find it. At the end of that long discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, when he really begins his earthly ministry in a sense, he begins preaching there. At the end of that sermon, in verse 29 of chapter 7 of Matthew, it says, He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Same word, same Greek word here. Said he, he acts like he's got some authority. And, and they, see, he always, they're questioning, he always had authority. He always had this air of authority. And these scribes and Pharisees were threatened by that authority. You see, he had just upset their apple carts, almost literally. <laughs> he had overturned these uh, money changers' tables in the temple. And he had, he had began to affect their bottom line. Let me just stop here and say this. If the true gospel were preached in some of the mega churches of this world, it would affect their bottom line. It would upset some apple cards. You know, there's a lot, there's a whole industry now out there. And, I, and I, let, me, let me stop and say this. I'm not out here trying to criticize other denominations or criticize uh, especially the people in those churches, because a lot of God's people are in those churches. Either that or there's not going to be many people in heaven. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that it's not just primitive Baptists going to heaven, because I tell you, if I believed that, I'd be kind of miserable. I'm thinking, y'all are it? <laughs> My goodness, I'm just kidding. I'd be glad to see y'all in heaven. But, but really, think about the, sl the low numbers we have. Even in the bigger churches of the, among the primitive Baptists, there's only maybe 100 to 200 people, you know, and, and, and so there's a lot of God's children in those churches. But think about if the true gospel of the true grace of God were preached in those churches and the focus were taken from where it is to where it ought to be, that would upset the apple carts. That would affect the bottom line. In fact, the Starbucks would be gone and they would have instead, they would have a simple worship. They would have simple services and, and a simple message preached that would actually feed God's people. Instead of having to buy a bagel and coffee before church, you could expect to be fed in church. Amen. And that's what we need to be here for, you see. So they come to him and they say, what, what gives you the right? Where's your authority come from? And, and again, I want to come back to this idea of their motives before we go any further. We need to understand because it helps us to understand his, his response to them, that their motives were not pure. They weren't coming there, say, like Nicodemus, as Brother John Morgan pointed out to us this morning, who was struggling, apparently, with what he believed. And he, so much so that he didn't want anybody else to know, and he went to Jesus by night. I believe Nicodemus was already born again before he came to see Jesus that night. Jesus wasn't telling him to go get born again. He was telling him what had happened to him. And the only way, Nicodemus, you can see this in the first place is that you've been born again. <laughs> but these weren't Nicodemus. These scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders were there to try to trap him. Notice that it says, they come to him and say, by what authority doest thou these things? He's laying a trap. They're, I'm sorry. They're laying a trap for him. These were not questions designed to obtain truth or to get true answers, but they were rather designed to trip him up. Because you see, if he says, if he answers this question and says, well, I'm doing it by my own authority, then they can discredit him. If on the other hand he says, I'm doing it under God's authority, then they can arrest him 
for blasphemy. So they've got, hey, they got the perfect question for him. They've laid the trap as best a man can lay a trap for God. And they say, you tell us by what authority you're doing this. But you see, the problem is man can't lay a trap for God. <laughs> Not successfully, at least. <laughs> you see, Jesus knew their hearts. And so let's look at his answers now. Let's look at his answers. And they're actually... There's actually three answers he gives, and one of them is not in this chapter or this, this gospel of Mark. We're going to have to turn over to Matthew. But the first answer he gives is found in verse, um, uh, verse 29. He says, uh, instead, of, instead of giving them an answer, he gives them, a, he gives them a question for an answer. He gives them a question for an answer. And, and, and by the way, Jesus always had a way of cutting to the heart of the matter every time. He got down to the real issue. And notice he says, I'm going to ask you a question. By what authority uh, of, does John do this? And I'm paraphrasing, of course. He said, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And I want you to notice something. Don't miss this. He says, answer me. <laughs> I like that. Because <laughs> I want to tell you something, beloved. When God, when you have an encounter with Jesus and he asks you a question, he's not, he's not messing around. He's saying, you answer me. When he asked the woman at the well a question, said, you go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, you're exactly right. <laughs> you don't. And he knew already. That's right. He knew already. And he says, you answer me. Notice the force of his question. He intended for them to give him an answer. Because you see, <clears throat> he's cutting to the heart of the issue. The real issue here is not his Jesus authority to do these things but the real issue is God's authority in their lives and their attitude toward it nobody likes to be told what to do remember how we started off this sermon we are all free Americans and we don't like to be told how to live our lives or that somebody has authority over our lives but guess what in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, I forget which verse, but it actually spans two verses. There's a place where he says, ye are not your own, ye are bought with a price. Did you know you're not your own tonight? You say, preacher, I don't like you telling me what to do. I don't like you telling me what the Bible says I ought to change about my life. I'm sorry, you're not your own. I'm my own man. I'm a rugged individualist. You may be in the eyes of the laws of men, but in the eyes of the laws of God, you belong to him. You are not your own. But they didn't like that. And especially people don't like to be told that they're wrong. Do you, how would you like it if I came up to you and I said, Brother Glendon, I just want you to know something. You've been wrong all your life. I mean, what's your first response? Oh, Brother Chris, I'm so glad you told me. Please tell me what I've been wrong in. I, don't, I know Brother Glendon pretty well, and he might actually do that to me, bless his heart. He's, he's got a tender heart that the Lord has made tender. But, but in his flesh, I know what he would say. He'd say, okay, big boy, you think you're right, I think I'm right. Let's, let's have a contest here. You see, nobody likes to be told, oh, I'm, uh, you know, Brother Chris, you're, you're wrong. You're just wrong. You're, you've been, and especially when it's something as important as, as your religion your theology, your beliefs. Nobody likes to be told what to do, and nobody especially likes to be told that they've been wrong all their lives. But you see, if these Pharisees and religious leaders were to truly submit to God's authority, then they're going to have to acknowledge that Jesus has gotten it right, and they've been getting it all wrong all their lives. 
isn't it true that our hearts are predisposed to go our own way and not to seek God's way? Isn't it true that we're predisposed to be the God of our own lives and to reject God's authority over our lives? You know, these Pharisees, some of them at least, we're told, weren't even children of God. In the 8th chapter of John, and you don't have to turn there, but you can sometime and read it, Jesus said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He tells us in the world, and if, if all you are is a worldly, natural man, then all you see is the lust of the eyes and the, and the, and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And that last one gets me so often, even though I feel myself to be born again. I believe I am one of God's children who's been regenerated, yet I still have that old carnal nature, and I, that pride of life gets me every time. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me I've got to submit. Jesus says to them in John 8, 47, He that is of God hears God's word, words. And ye, he said, Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. And let me tell you, beloved, there's a part of you in your life and in your heart that is not of God. Even if you're a child of God, there's a part of you that is of the flesh, that is of the earth, fleshy. There's a part of you that rejects any authority over your life or your decisions or your soul. It's that carnal nature, that natural man. But praise God, if you're a child of God who has been regenerated, there's something in you that is of God, and you can hear God's words. So look right quick at their answer. He, he answers them with a question. And so they, I can almost see them raising their hand and say, excuse me just a minute. And they huddle up over here and say, man, what are we going to do? He's asked us a question. Now, we, how are we going to handle this? Because if we say, say you know, say if, if John's uh, baptism, and, and really that's a reference to his whole teaching here, uh, if John's baptism is from heaven, then, then he's going to say, well, why don't you believe who I am who I am? Because remember what John's teaching was behold the lamb of god that taketh away the sin of the world when jesus came on the scene john pointed him out as the messiah but they could not stand that they would not have that so we can't say that his baptism is of heaven but now if we say it's of men listen those folks out here these masses will lose credibility with them because they believe that john was a prophet sent from god so what are we going to do well, they're going to do like any good lawyer would tell them to do. I plead the fifth. <laughs> I plead the fifth. We just, we can't say. <laughs> we can't say. We cannot tell, they say. And that's a very emphatic statement in the Greek, by the way. It's not just we're trying to figure it out. and we can't. It's, it's an absolutely we cannot tell, which is very telling, I can say, because it tells you a lot about them and where their heart is. And so... Jesus says, okay, I'm not going to answer you either. <laughs> I'm not going to give you an answer. See, Jesus was too smart and too wise and too divine to be pulled into their trap, which is a good lesson for us, by the way. There's people in the world, and we'll come back to this, Lord willing, tonight. There are people in the world that will try to trap you and trip you up. Don't be pulled into their trap. Don't do it. Go back. You know, the, the devil tried to trip Jesus up. He said, hey, man, I know you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus didn't say, you know who I am? I'm, I'm the son of God. I can live as long as I want to without bread. 
Even Jesus didn't assert his own authority or become offended at what he said. Jesus, like us, like we ought to, went back to the word of God. It is written. Jump down from the temple, Jesus. You know what the, you see, that's another thing, by the way. I'm getting off in another message, but let me just say this. Those that would try to trip you up, if they can't get you one way, they'll get you another. So, so when he realized that Jesus was a religious man and knew the scriptures, he said, well, I'm going to misquote or quote out of context some scripture for him. Say, you know, it's written that you'll not, he'll lift you up lest you dash your foot upon a stone. And Jesus just said, you know, you can take it out of context all day long. All day long you can try to pull something out and make it, rest it to your own benefit. But I'll tell you what, it says, thou shalt not tempt God. It is written. See, he had a grasp of the scriptures. Then ultimately he said, I'll give you all these kingdoms of the world. In other words, you can bypass the cross and still sit on a throne if you'll just fall down and worship me. And Jesus didn't say, again, man, you're making me so mad. I can't stand to hear you talking that way. About, I'm just going to get mad and angry and lash out. He said, meekly and correctly, it is written, thou shalt worship God and him only shalt thou serve. See, Jesus didn't get drawn into their trap. He said, because you're not going to answer me, I'm not going to answer you. I'm not going to answer you. You go back and study some more. But then he didn't stop there. I don't believe that these parables that I want to talk about for just a few minutes are, are, the, uh, are unrelated. I believe they're absolutely related to these questions that they're asking. And in fact, I believe they're an answer to it. So he gives not only a question for an answer, but, a, but two parables for an answer. And the first parable is not contained here in, in the Gospel of Mark, but it's contained back in the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 28. So after, and Matthew's given this same, uh, he's given this same response, he's given this same answer to them here, it's recorded in the, in the book of Matthew, but then it goes on a little further. In Matthew chapter 21 and verse, uh, verse 28, after saying, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things, Jesus says, but what think ye? A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whither of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him the first. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward, that ye might believe him. So this is the first parable. It's a parable about the two sons, the one that was on the face of it obedient, but ended up being disobedient, and the other one who on the face of it was disobedient, but ended up being obedient. Now, how does this relate to what he's discussing with the Pharisees? Well, I believe, and I'm not going to go into all the, take too much time tonight in these parables, but, but I just want you to see that there is an implicit accusation in this parable. And there's an implicit question in this parable. First of all, what he's saying to them, remember, they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Trying to trip him up. 
And he, he goes into the question about John, and they won't answer. And he says, I'm not going to answer either. He said, so let me tell you, let me illustrate this situation that we're facing here. And he goes in to talk about this man with the two sons. And okay, remember the first son said, when, at, when asked to go or instructed to go, he said, I'm not going. It's obvious to everybody that this is a disobedient son. I don't know if there were people standing around maybe that heard him. Uh, heard this man in this interaction with his son, but if they were, they could look at that boy and say, what a, what a disgrace. How disobedient is this boy? How disrespectful is he? I, I, I don't, I, I, I tell you, I'm glad I'm not like him. In fact, the other son might have been saying the same thing. He turns to the second son and he says, okay, I want you to go. And he says, yes, sir, I'll go, daddy. I'll go. And by his outward testimony, those standing around would say, wow, what a, what a good boy. What a sweet young man. Boy, that's, that's the kind of young man I want my sons to be. Listen how respectful he is. Listen how, how he, he's giving lip service to respect to his father the 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 answer of his lips is so respectful that's the way everybody ought to be but you notice the difference the difference in their actions ultimately the first son who was disrespectful and disobedient in his words became respectful and obedient and submitted and submitted to the authority of his father whereas the other son Looked good on the outside, sounded good in his speech, but in his actions, he rejected the authority of his father. Notice the accusation contained in this, and I believe the Pharisees would have, this would have hit them right square in the forehead. Some who claim to obey God actually do not do so, while others who initially oppose God ultimately serve God. There's a, there's a statement that we make sometimes, and sometimes we're guilty of this. We see, we see the, the man in the gutter, or we see the, the one who's been arrested, or we see uh, others out there in the world that are living in a certain way, and we say, boy, I'm glad I'm not like them. Oh, they're, they're, they're worthless. They're, there's no use for them in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> but sometimes it's those very ones that end up being the greatest in the kingdom of God. Uh, it it kind of reminds you of our statement I hear often that every, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Pharisees didn't see it that way. The Pharisees didn't like this at all. And they didn't like this accusation that they were, they were too holy to be wrong. They were too holy. They were too righteous in, their, in themselves. They were, hey, we're praying in public. We're greeting each other on street corners with, uh, with verses of Scripture. We're, we're talking the talk. And people hear us talking the talk. But the problem is they weren't walking the walk. <laughs> and they had their whole focus wrong. Everything they believed, they believed as long as we can be uh, better than these other folks and live more righteously than these other folks and have more righteous acts than these other folks, we're going to be okay. We're going to keep the law and that's going to get us where we need to be. 
And that's why when John came on the scene, he looked at him and he said, you generation of vipers. You generation of vipers. What, 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 what does that mean? Well, I don't know all the implications of that, but if you ever watched the National Geographic Channel and seen snakes, uh, one on snakes, I, I've, I've seen one several times about those, those massive cobras in India. And, and they are sleek, and they are, they are beautiful. They, they've got a beauty to them that, boy, they just look, they just look powerful, and they look good on the outside. But, but you know what they're full of? They're full of poison. They're full of poison. And not only that, did you know that king cobras are cannibals? They eat their own kind. <laughs> they eat other snakes. I mean, that just sounds awful, doesn't it? But they look good. They look, they, they spread that hood out and they look, they look impressive, but they're vipers, they're, they're poison. And he said, that's what you're like, Pharisees. You see, there was an implicit accusation, but there was also an implicit question. And it's one we ought to ask ourselves, by the way. Which one am I? Which son am I? The Pharisees believed they had enough righteousness within themselves to make it into heaven. When in reality, the downcast sinners were more righteous than they. Notice what he said, Verily I say unto you, the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. I've mentioned this uh, new series, The Chosen, before. And... Um, Certainly, you should never elevate it to the level of Scripture or in, in any way like that. But it's a, an awesome depiction of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the earthly ministry. And what it shows you, and it's filling out some of the details, so to speak, and they're fictionalized. All the details that aren't contained in the Scripture are just fictionalized, but it, but it carries the, uh, uh, the ring of truth about the culture of the day. Okay, It's true to the culture. They hated publicans. The Jews hated publicans because publicans were seen as collaborators with, with the Romans. They were seen, and they not only were collaborators, most of them were skimming off the top. They were charging more in taxes than they were entitled to receive, and they were rich, and they had much nicer homes than the normal Jewish uh, merchants and others in that day, and they were hated, okay? Never would a publican have been admitted into the temple. Never would a publican have been welcomed into the worship service of the Orthodox Jew of that day. And yet it was a publican that the Lord Jesus Christ called named Levi, who ultimately we know as Matthew, who, is writing the very, who wrote the very book that we're reading out of right now. Mary Magdalene, full of demons and devils and harlot of that day. Rahab, a harlot. Someone you say, if we walk into this, into this building someday and you look over and you see, oh, you know, somebody that you know to be a harlot of the streets is sitting here. How would you react? How would you feel? You say, well, I believe in grace, but that's too much grace. I can't handle that much grace. <laughs> Some drunk in the gutter who shows up here someday and is seated here to hear the gospel of the grace of God. I can't handle that. That's too much grace. <laughs> Sometimes we're guilty of that. I, I know you're, I, don't, I trust that you're not that way, but sometimes in our flesh we would react that way. And there are many churches, there are many places that those people can go that they are not welcome. There was a woman at the well who was rejected of all those around her. 
She'd been married five times. Oh, married and divorced and remarried and divorced, and now she's living with a guy. Now, the Lord did not condone the fornication that she was living in. He did not condone that. The woman caught in adultery. He did not condone her adultery. But I tell you what he didn't do. He did not reject her outright and say, you have no place with me. What he did do is he said, where's your accusers? She said, there's no man here, Lord, accusing me. He said, neither do I accuse thee. Go thy way and sin no more. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not the church of anything goes. It's not the place where you can do anything and live any way you want to. But I'll tell you what it is. It is a hospital for the wounded. It's not a, it's not a place for the perfect. It's a hospital for the wounded. And we need to have that attitude. The Pharisees didn't. He said, John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. You know what I've been amazed by through the years? I've been amazed by who all ends up really believing in, in the grace of God. That's amazing to me. It's always thrilling to me, Brother Mackey, to see somebody that you say, well, that person will never be coming to church you'll never see them darken the door of the church and then they spend you know we can think of several people that spend all the rest of their lives in church that you never would have thought would have <clears throat> so jesus says implicitly which one are you which one are you the publicans and the harlots who may have a past but who have seen the grace of God and have believed and trusted in Him? Is that you? Or are you the one that gives lip service to it and then is going to go out and just not do His will? That's what the Pharisees were doing. Then He gives them another parable, and we'll turn back to Mark as we bring this, we'll try to bring this to a close. It'll be hard to complete this one, but we'll do our best time we have. In chapter 12 of Mark, it, don't remember, there weren't chapter divisions in the, when the Bible was written. So this is following on the heels of that other parable and the question he asked the Pharisees. And here in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, He began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard, set a hedge about it, and digged a place for the wine fat, and built a tower, and laid it out to husbandmen, and went into the far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandmen a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? Now, I don't think I have to go into too much depth here to convince you that the vineyard is Israel. The vineyard is the kingdom of God the visible kingdom of God in that day, the nation of Israel. You go back to Isaiah chapter 5 sometime. We might turn there in a minute, but I'm not 
going to right now. You'll go back to Isaiah chapter 5 sometime and you'll see that God uses a vineyard to describe his, his people, the nation of Israel. The husbandmen, I believe, are, are a type of these religious leaders of the day that were to, supposed to be tending this garden, supposed to be taking care of the spiritual and religious needs of God's people. But you know what? <laughs> it says, and again, you don't have to turn there, but you can sometime and read it. In Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7, it says, When he came to this vineyard, he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. I just want to say to you without too much elaboration that the most oppressive thing that I could ever tell you up here from this pulpit is that you've got to do something to get yourself saved. You think that, now, I certainly could try to fleece you out of money. <laughs> I, could, I could be, you know, I could do like one preacher I heard and, and tell you that, the, that I had a dream and the Lord told me that the congregation ought to buy me a Cadillac, <laughs> you know. I, that happened. That really happened. And, and the worst part of it was the congregation bought him a Cadillac. But uh, I could come up here and try to convince you to support me in different ways. But the most, that, that would be oppressive if you submitted to that. But I'll tell you, the most oppressive thing I could ever teach you is that your salvation is in your hands because you cannot achieve your own salvation. A dead man is dead in trespasses and in sins. It doesn't mean he's a little bit alive and can do something to fan the flame. Beloved, there is no flame. As my old preacher, Brother J.C. Russian, used to say, he was a big fisherman. He's referring to a fish. He said, there's not a spiritual wiggle in him. <laughs> you think about that. There's not a spiritual wiggle in you, beloved, in your flesh. They were oppressing God's people. They, were, they had made... They had, they had made salvation so unattainable that the common man was hopeless. You know, that's why the publicans and the harlots latched on to this teaching. That's why they believed John and they believed Jesus because it resonated with something in their hearts. Now, I realize if the harlot or the particular publican we're not regenerated, it wouldn't, but I'm talking about regenerated children of God who found themselves in these different places in life, maybe by their own choices, but nevertheless, they were there, but the teachings of grace resonated with them because they knew they could not be what these Pharisees claimed to be. There was a publican and a Pharisee that went down to pray, according to Jesus. The Pharisee walked down sort of figuratively to the front of the church and said, look at me, look how great I am. God, I'm so glad I'm as good as I am, <laughs> and I'm glad I'm not like him. I'm sure when the Pharisee turned around and looked at the back of the church to the publican that wouldn't even lift up his eyes so much as to heaven and was smiting on his breast, he probably clicked his tongue and said, poor guy, poor, poor guy. I wish he could be more like me. When in reality, God says that man went down justified as opposed to the self-righteous Pharisee. This vineyard was Israel. And by the way, Israel was not chosen by God because they were so good. Israel was not the people of God because they were so great. They were blessed by God in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. 
They were to be, a, in fact, the whole world was to be blessed through them. The whole, every one of the seed of Abraham that was numberless as far as men are concerned. God knows the number, but men can't number it. It's as many as the sands of the sea or the stars of the sky, they were to be blessed through Israel. But they had lost their way. The leaders were now fleecing the sheep instead of feeding the sheep. They despitefully abuse the servants, and I believe the servants he's talking about here are the prophets. You know, the occupational hazard of the prophet was death. <laughs> you know, you got some occupational hazards out there. You know, Brother Dan does construction work. He might, you know, he might turn a, he might turn a, a dozer over or something, you know, but that's not the common, that's not normally. He doesn't get up in the morning going to work thinking, you know, I might die today. <laughs> I mean, we all could, sure, but that's not the main hazard I have. When I, when I get up and start reading a case for court, I'm not thinking, boy, I better be careful. This could kill me. <laughs> that's not my occupational hazard. But I'll tell you, the occupational hazard for prophets was that they might just be martyred for the cause of God in Christ. The occupational hazard of the early preachers was that they just might die for what they believed in. Ask Stephen someday. And beloved, we may be getting to that point someday ourselves but that's not where I want to go tonight but I'll tell you we need to be prepared for that if it comes see they killed these prophets abused them and ultimately they killed his son and by the way back over in Matthew I'm just going to turn there and read it in, in, in Mark he says what therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do and he skips over their answer in Mark but over in Matthew they pronounce their own judgment <laughs> In Matthew chapter 21 again, it says uh, in verse 41, when he asked them this question, what's the Lord of the vineyard going to do? They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. And guess what happened? Just fast forward to about, I don't know, 50 or 60 years um, well, actually less than that, about 40 years. A.D. 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. Of course, after Jesus' crucifixion, Paul says at one point in his ministry, Lo, I turn to the Gentiles. Others outside the blood of Abraham came into the kingdom. All right, let's, let's wrap this up. Um, what are the lessons from this? I believe one of the first lessons from all that we've read tonight and studied Number one, don't fight fire with fire. You know, sometimes aren't we tempted to lash out and use the tactics that our enemies are using against us? They came to him going to trip him up. They were going to be, uh, they were going to be confrontational. They were going to, you know, it would have been so easy for, for Jesus to just, uh, you know, in anger, lash out at them. But he didn't do that. Rather than answering curtly and sharply, Jesus was wise in his response, although direct. Now, he didn't beat around the bush, but he didn't, he didn't get overcome by emotion and get angry because they had offended him. He just said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you some scriptural questions. Sometimes a wise, well-asked question will put the burden back on the person who's asking, especially those that aren't really interested in truth. There are some of those. Now, there's some that really are interested. But even then, a wise, well-asked question about Scripture will, will, will push them in the right direction. The motive should always be to share the good news of the gospel of truth. 
and to do it gently and in love. Second lesson, don't you forget where Jesus' authority comes from because that's where your authority comes from. See, Jesus could have gone into this, but he didn't. But I want to go into it for just a second. That he didn't, his authority was real. It's implicit in what he's asking there and the way he answers. But his authority is real. And he, even Jesus, though, did not take this authority on himself. See, Jesus wasn't the rebel of the Trinity. Jesus was right in uh, conjunction with the Trinity. He was right in fellowship. He wasn't some kind of rebel saying, well, I'll go take care of things, Daddy. You know, he didn't do that. He was right in there doing what the Father, his, his Father, sent him to do. Over in John chapter 7, I want you to listen to this. In chapter 7 of John, in verse 14, he says, Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. So this is this same week, I believe, or, or it's the same type of week, if it's not the same week. He said, The Jews marvel, how knoweth this man letters, having never learned? In other words, where did he get his authority? <laughs> it's kind of the same question, isn't it? And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. You know, all of the great philosophers of, of ancient days, um, many of them uh, sort of promoted themselves. They wanted to make sure that others knew how smart they were. Jesus wasn't like that. And Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived because he wasn't just man, he was God. And even he didn't say, well, hey, I've been thinking about this and I've come up with something. And by the way, I'm God. And so what I say goes. No, he said, my doctrine is not mine but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God, whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. You see, Jesus said, I didn't come up with this all on my own, although he did. I mean, don't get me wrong, he was God, but he's trying to make the point to them that I'm not here as a rebel. I'm not here as someone who's stepping out on his own. I'm not coming up even with new doctrine. This is not new. This is all old doctrine. There is no conflict between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament was simply leading us up to the New Testament. You know, over in John chapter 6, let's just turn back there just for a minute. In John chapter 6, now we all know verse 37, and we all know verse 44, and some of those good verses there that we love to claim as our own. But notice in verse 38, For I came, not, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And that comes on the heels of verse 37, which verse 37 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. He's talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about the new birth right there. All that are his, all that are his in the covenant of grace will be born again. And by the way, it's because I came down not to do mine own will. I came down here uh, uh, submissive to the authority of God my Father. That doesn't sound right, does it? Jesus submissive. But guess what 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, uh, chapter 11 and verse 3 says? He said, I would have you know the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man. We like that so far, don't we, men? But now look what it says. And the head of Christ is God. You say, wait a minute, I thought 
women were inferior to men because the man is the head of the woman. <laughs> well, is Christ inferior to God? God is his head. <laughs> I don't think so, men. If you read that verse that way uh, towards your wife, you're misinterpreting it. <laughs> you're resting it to your own, uh, to your own uh, uh, machinations. You see, over in John 17, as he's praying that great high priestly prayer here, right before he's taken, in the 17th chapter in verse 4, we'll just for lack of time skip down there, he says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Jesus says, I've got authority and it's from God. Now, he was God, no doubt. He had that authority because he was God, but he had that authority because it came from God the Father, you see. And by the way, because he had authority, we have some authority to preach this word. Look, at, look at on down in this chapter here, chapter 17 and verse 16. Speaking of his people here, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And look at verse 18. As thou sent, hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Our very walking papers, our very orders, as it were, from God, emanate from the fact that he had authority when he was here. Don't forget where Jesus' authority comes from. Don't forget where your authority comes from. It doesn't come from within you. It comes from the Word of God. It comes from the Spirit of God. It comes from the fact that He had authority. And finally, don't forget the purpose of acknowledging the authority of Jesus. See, there's a part here we haven't finished yet in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to close with this. He said in this parable of the vineyard in verse 9, What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? And here's the answer that they had already answered. He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And that's exactly what he did. But notice as he continues here in verse 10, And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I want you to listen to this marvelous truth. Don't forget the reason it's important that Jesus had this authority. The reason it's important is that he is the cornerstone. You know what a cornerstone is? The cornerstone is the first stone that's set in the construction of a foundation of a building. And all the other stones in the building are measured or set rather in reference to that cornerstone. So the cornerstone of your building affects every aspect of the structure. If you don't have the cornerstone right, if you don't have the cornerstone in the right place, the whole structure falls. Everything that you have built around it, if the cornerstone of this building had been set wrong, then the whole building would be off. Beloved, that's the same way with, in reference to our, uh, our theology, in the reference to our religious beliefs, our biblical beliefs. If the cornerstone is off, everything will be off. The religious leaders of that day were building their whole system on the wrong thing. <laughs> you see, that, that verse is a quote there that Jesus is, is giving. He's actually quoting from Psalm 118. I want you to look with me right quick back to Psalm 118. 
And in Psalm 118, this is what we will begin reading in verse, uh, first of all, in verse 8. Look at verse 8 and 9. And, and there's a lot more here. It's a wonderful scripture. By the way, this is according to uh, what I've seen calculated. These verses are the, are the center verses of the Bible. If you count up all the verses of the Bible, verses 8 and 9 are the two center verses of all the, uh, the verses in all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Verse 8 says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. There's a lot of preaching there. <laughs> but the main point of that is, is don't put your faith in anything man does. That could be talked about from the standpoint of politics. That could be talked about from the standpoint of church. But it can also be talked about from the standpoint of eternal salvation. Don't put your hopes in man. Don't put your hope in yourself. Are you a man? Or are you a woman? Are you a human being? Don't put your hope and trust in that. And skipping down for lack of time to verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them. And I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The writer here is saying that I've heard some things now, and I know now where my salvation lies. God, you have become my salvation. I understand that now. Listen, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. <clears throat> It is marvelous in our eyes. Beloved, if your whole, if your theology is not built upon the cornerstone of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole building will collapse around you. You see, it didn't take God and you to work eternal salvation. It certainly didn't take you because all your righteousnesses are filthy rags. But, oh, beloved, it took the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now I know that that can be applied to every day in a sense. But that's not the application of that verse. That verse is talking about the day. Not just any day. The day. This is the day that the Lord hath made. This is the day that had been prophesied from the Garden of Eden. This is the day that all the old prophets had been looking forward to. This is the day that we look back to, the day of Calvary, the day when the headstone of the corner was set and fixed in a visible way in our eternal salvation. You know, he's the linchpin of eternal salvation. And around him, it all revolves. He is the cornerstone of our theology. And without Him, it all collapses. Beloved, these Pharisees weren't willing to submit to the authority of Jesus. They had their own system built up. But as we see, as we will see, and you've already seen as we go through the Scriptures, that whole system collapsed around, their, around themselves as Jesus visibly demonstrated himself to be the cornerstone of salvation. May the Lord bless us to look to him and only to him and to submit to his authority in everything that we do in our lives. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.